Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Hey, let's pray. Father, as we come to this word, and as we let it speak into our lives, we ask, give us minds that can understand, hearts that are open to receive, to accept and obey, and a willingness to follow Jesus and the example that has been set by your people in the early church, and we pray it for Jesus' glory. Amen. We're talking about the church this morning here, and so I want you to uh, turn to the person next to you and say to them, I'm glad you're here. (laughs) All right, good, thank you. So it's just nice to do that, isn't it? Now I want you to uh, turn to another person and I want you to say to them, this one, you're going to complete a sentence, so I'll give you just a moment to think about it. Here's what the sentence is. One thing I love about this church is... Okay, turn to someone else and say to them, one thing I love about this church is... All right, third thing, here we go, one last time. Uh, Turn to someone else and say to them, I hope God doesn't strike you down like Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) No, don't don't say that, don't say that. All right. Hey, um, something that we do regularly here at St. Oswald's is that we host meals for people when they... Uh, they've come to church, they're new or newish, and they're trying to explore and think about whether to make St. Oswald's their church home. Many of you have experienced one of these at some point along the way. It's a way of welcoming people and of orienting them and of getting to meet some other people who are new, fresh face here at church. And one of the questions that I often ask when we eat together is, what's one thing that's important to you in a church? Not this church, just a church. There's not a right answer, uh, there's not a wrong answer, it's just a chance to share, to get to know each other, to hear each other's hearts. And as we go around the room, the the most common answer I think that um, people share is something like, you know, what's important to me is a community where people are real with one another, or where there are deep relationships, or maybe something related to a, a church where not everyone looks the same or has the same story. Other times people say that they really value good, relevant Bible teaching, or a warm welcome, or inspiring worship, or 
the ways that the church serves in its local community or the opportunity to contribute and play a part. And these are all good things. I've said most of them myself at different points. But over the last little while, when it comes to me, and when it's my turn to share, the thing I've found myself gravitating to saying is something a little different. More recently, what I say I value in a church is that the community is expectant. That it's hopeful and hungry for God to work. That it's a community where people are aware of and paying attention to that they're desiring the presence of God in our lives and in our midst. And today's Bible passage could be my key text. It's not, I don't have a key text for it, but this could be it. See, last week we looked at how the early church attracted not just publicity, but also trouble. A man who'd been lame since he was born was healed when Peter said to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And some 5,000 men plus women and children had believed in the name of Jesus and become followers, disciples, part of the church. But this had pricked the ears of the Jerusalem authorities. They didn't like the idea of this. And now the apostles were being ordered to not speak about the name of Jesus. They want the name of Jesus silenced. But the church won't stop. In fact, they pray at the end of the passage that we looked at last week, verse 29 of chapter 4, and now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants your, uh, to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's what they pray. And then in verse 31... When they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God with boldness. It's a second Holy Spirit moment, similar to Pentecost in chapter 2, a moment where the Spirit descends and He fills the people. We said a few weeks ago that the Holy Spirit doesn't just come once into your life and then never again. He does come once into your life in the indwelling and remaining always with you way, so that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have God's Spirit with you, abiding with you. We said that's like the experience of a child walking hand in hand with their father, knowing His love. But then the Spirit can come again and again and again and again with fresh power to fill you because He, or just like He fills the believers here, not because He was absent before, but because sometimes He chooses to intensify His presence with His people. Like the moment that a Father sweeps the child off their feet and wraps them up in an embrace. You knew God's love, you knew the Father's love when you were walking hand in hand, but you know it, oh, you know it, when you are wrapped up into an embrace. 
And so here's a community that's been filled with the Holy Spirit. And the very next verse, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, goes on to talk about what this community is like. And it's no accident that what he describes about this community is an astounding picture. So what I want to look at today is what happens when the Holy Spirit fills a community with the presence of God. And I think there's three things that we can notice that result. Number one, it becomes a generous community. Number two, it becomes a holy community. And number three, it becomes a blessed community. Generous, holy, blessed. See, one of the results of the Holy Spirit coming with power on His people and empowering a community is a community of astounding generosity. If you take a look in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. Now, notice that there's a unity among the whole church. Luke says that they were of one heart and soul. Some translations have one heart and mind, but similar thing that's been got at there. They weren't just a group of individuals who associated with each other for an hour or two on a Sunday. There was a deep communion within them. There was a unity of spirit, of purpose and desire. And one of the things that Jesus longs for his people is unity. In John chapter 17, the night before Jesus dies, he prays a prayer. And in that prayer, he prays to the Father and asks that all those who believe, not just the disciples who were with him at the time, but everyone who would become a disciple would be one, just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. Jesus is on about the unity of his people. And sometimes we talk about the reality of our spiritual unity of, in Christ, that we've all been brought into this family of God by the blood of Jesus, and that we don't access the, the church. No one gets into the church by merit or by their own standard, but simply by God's grace. And all that's true. We, we're united spiritually before we even come together in him. And yet, at the same time, it's important to realize that this spiritual unity that we have in Christ is meant to translate into real enacted unity too. It's not just a spiritual unity, it's meant to be tangible, practical, and that's why it says there, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. They made their unity visible by meeting the needs of one another. In a way that we care for the neediest person, the neediest people in our midst is important. It shows us 
to be an authentic, it either shows us to be an authentic Jesus community or it reveals that actually at the end of the day we're just going through the motions. Now we've got to say the same thing as we did a couple of weeks back when we were talking about the picture of the church's generosity in chapter 2. It's not that these disciples, these believers, were against owning private property. They weren't advocating for a primitive version of communism. In fact, there wasn't even a requirement to sell your property and give it all to the proceeds of, of the church. And Peter says as much to Ananias there in chapter 5, verse 4. He says to him, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It was your property. And, and after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? You could have done with it what you wished. There's no rule, no obligation. And importantly, we also need to add that the purpose of sharing wasn't simply so that there would be no private ownership or that there would be complete and absolute equality among everybody. You know, the goal was that everyone who was in need could be cared for. And so this generosity sprung from the principle of saying, if there's a needy person here, if there's someone who, who we can help, then we're going to do that. Do you see what this is saying? This is, this is saying that when God's presence manifests itself in a community... And as a result, when the gospel gets deep down into us, one of the things it will cause us to do is it will cause us to loosen our grip on our stuff and tighten our grip on each other. It will cause us to loosen our grip on stuff and tighten our hold, our care for one another. And this makes sense because this is the way of Jesus. Paul says in Philippians that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a slave. Why? Why does he do it? So that we might be lifted out of death and made spiritually rich through him. And here in Acts, we see an example of this generosity working its way through Christ's people. You get particularly the example of a man named Joseph, also called Barnabas, because everyone had to have two names, it seems, in those days. And he sold a field, and he brought the money and then laid it at the apostles' feet. See, Barnabas... He lays his money down. And as a result, what he does is he picks people up. That's what generosity can do. I've heard it said that when it comes to generosity, some people are like rocks. God has to strike them with a hammer hard just to get anything out of them. And even then, it's often just sparks and shards. And some people are like sponges. God can get a lot out of them, but he really has to squeeze them. But some people are like honeycomb. And for these people, the sweetness just drips off them. 
And the Holy Spirit wants to take people who are made of rock or sponge and turn them into honeycomb. Minus the bees, of course. What kind of a person are you? Secondly, we see that one of the things that the Spirit does is it creates a holy community. See, if Barnabas is an example of generosity, then Ananias and Sapphira show us that the, the manifest presence of God makes the, makes the community holy. Up until this point, the opposition that the church has faced has all been external opposition. It's all been from outside the church, but here it shifts to an opposition within And what we see is that this kind of opposition is more subtle and spiritually it's more deadly. The situation is this, Ananias and Sapphira, they're a husband and wife, they make a plan to sell a piece of property and to give the proceeds to the church, but they conspire together to say that they sold it for less than they did. So that when they give the amount that they give, they can take the credit for taking for having given all of it when really they've kept some back for themselves. And it's important to get that because Ananias and Sapphira's problem isn't first and foremost a generosity problem, it's an integrity problem. They bend the truth for the sake of their reputation. They want the glory without the cost, and so their generosity isn't motivated by love for God and love for their church family in need. It's motivated by love for themselves. They don't give in response to God's grace, but in order to get something in return. And so Peter tells Ananias that Satan has filled his heart. Did you see that? Not the Holy Spirit. Satan, the great deceiver. And Peter says this sin is serious. He hasn't just lied to the church, he's lied to God. And so read with me verse 5 of chapter 5. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. That sounds like a rough job for the young men, the ministry apprentices of the day. And they have to do it twice. Some three hours later, Sapphira comes in. She's not heard the news. There's a brief exchange that she has with Peter where she doubles down on the lie. And the result is that she too drops down dead and has to be carried out and buried. Now, like me, you probably read this and you get a little nervous. Is this what God's like? The sin doesn't seem so bad. Why is there not an opportunity for repentance? Well, three things to say here. Uh, First, there are actually very few moments in the whole Bible where this kind of thing happens. This is not God's standard way of dealing with sin. We read one of the Old Testament examples of it earlier. Under David's instructions, the Israelites move the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Presence of God, up to Jerusalem. They put the Ark 
on the back of some oxen, and as the oxen are walking up the road, the oxen stumble, and the ark starts to tip, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to, to steady the ark. But because he's touched the ark of the covenant, he falls down dead. And that moment as well seems like one of these moments like, who is this God? He doesn't seem like the God of Jesus. But what we don't realize without a bit of deeper digging is that God had given actually clear instructions about how his ark was to be transported. In Exodus 25, when the dimensions and description of the ark is given, it says that the ark is to be carried on timber poles by people. And so David and the people had disobeyed God in their plans to move the ark to Jerusalem by carrying it on a cart with oxen. A a cart was how you moved goods, not how you treated the king. But the second thing to say is that these moments tend to happen when the holy presence of God is particularly manifest. So Uzzah dies because he touches the ark, the most holy thing in the Israelite temple system. And here in Acts, Ananias and Sapphira die after this moment where the Spirit is poured out in power. And and the point in Acts, one of the things that we're meant to start to see in Acts is that the new church community has become the new temple where the presence of God lives and dwells. It's not in the Jerusalem temple, though they're meeting in its courts in Solomon's portico. It is in Jesus's people. And so this moment is not an ordinary one. It's a headline moment. It makes Ananias and Sapphira's sin all the more disturbing. The whole community has been filled with the Holy Spirit. They all know it and they can see it, and yet in this same moment, Ananias and Sapphira's hearts have been filled by Satan. The third thing to say about <coughs> sorry, what's going on here is that God's treatment of Ananias and Sapphira is meant to be a sign, a signpost to show us that God takes sin seriously, even if he doesn't ordinarily punish it like this. And we don't see people falling down dead at Andrew's feet. He may have tried it, I don't know, but I haven't seen it happen. That's a joke, he hasn't tried it. Now, this kind of judgment isn't the normal way of doing things. It's not the normal way that things operate, but it is supposed to be a warning for us. Because that kind of competitive spirit that motivates Ananias and Sapphira to seek their own status and glory can also drive us. You can rarely see it on the surface. People like Ananias and Sapphira look the same as people like Barnabas. But underneath, there's a craving for human glory, a willingness to manipulate the truth for our own agendas, a jealousy of others' gifts, and an unthankful heart. 
And all of that is opposed to the one heart and soul holy community that the Spirit by His presence is building. And so a question just to ask yourself is, how are you treating the church, this community of people? Are there ways that a self-seeking spirit is at work in your heart, in our hearts? Well, thirdly, what the Spirit creates by His presence is a blessed community. See, we can say, looking at Ananias and Sapphira, that the presence of the Spirit makes sin even more stark and that the presence of God is untamable, and, and that therefore there is something kind of dangerous about God's presence. And the more intense His presence, as always in moments where the Spirit awakens a community or a city or a nation, the more that our sin will be shown for the unholy, disturbing thing that it is. That's why in, in moments of revival in church history, it's always accompanied by a deep and unusual repentance. But all of that raises the question, do we really want this Spirit to be particularly present? Do we want the holiness of God to be near to us? Isn't it safer to keep Him at arm's length, to let Him get close but not too close so that it doesn't demand everything from us, our generosity, our holiness, our devotion? Well, maybe, but there's a great cost to doing so as well. I love how in the story of David and the ark, David gets angry because of the Lord's holy presence, and he decides to send the ark not to Jerusalem, but to the house of Obed-Edom. And then listen to what it says there next in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Do you notice that? Here's the thing, the holy presence of God will both expose sin, but it will also bring blessing. Like fresh rains on a dry land, it cannot help but cause life and goodness to abound. And in this description of the early church in Acts chapter 4, Luke says that great grace was upon them all. How did this great grace manifest itself? In remarkable generosity, yes, but also from verses 12 onwards, in miraculous signs and wonders, which in turn led to church growth. Take a look, chapter 5, verse 14. Yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Great numbers, both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. I mean, wow. I've never had anyone die at my feet, thankfully. I've also never had anyone healed by my shadow. There really is something special about the moment that the church is in, in Acts 
these first few chapters. And yet we don't want to separate what God is doing, even in the present, so far from all of that, because the signpost is there for us too, when the Holy Spirit empowers His people. It leads to blessing. And if we want to see God do more in our midst and in our community, then it will only happen because He is pleased to fill us with fresh power and fresh grace. And so one of the things that we do is we pray. That's what the church was doing when the Spirit shook the room in chapter 4, verse 31. We need to pray too. We're doing that next Sunday at Upper Room Prayer. Love to see you there with me. But notice also what they prayed for. We're going back into the last verse of the chapter, uh, the section before, but what they prayed for was boldness. They prayed for boldness because they were scared. But they don't pray for their circumstances to change. They don't pray that the opposition would go away. They don't pray that their wealth or their freedom or their children or their lives would be protected. These are not wrong to pray for. And at the same time, they understood that there was something more fundamental to pray. They realized that their real problem was that their circumstances were fragile and they needed a boldness that could go beyond their circumstances. And the beautiful thing is that when the Spirit comes, He shakes the room, but what happens to the disciples is that they become unshakable. John Chrysostom, early church father, he said, the more the place was shaken, the less the people were shaken. And you think about generosity, do you know why we're not more generous? Mostly it's not because we want to be stingy. I don't know many people who think that stinginess is a good thing. Mostly, we're not more generous because we're fearful. We're fearful that if our circumstances got bad, if our bank balances got too low, we'd be shaken. We'd be in danger. We'd lose control. But what happens when God is very near to your heart is that you stop worrying so much. You stop fearing you start to realize this money, these possessions, they could never satisfy my soul. And you realize that you have the very thing that can never be taken away from you and that can ground you in an eternal security. You have the grace and love and power of God through Jesus Christ, an inheritance imperishable, unshakable. And so what we need, if we're to be a community of extraordinary generosity, if we're to be a place where God's holy presence blesses everything it touches, is a deep assurance that God is looking after us, that He is with us, that He will never leave us nor forsake us. We see that in Christ and we pray, come Holy Spirit and grant us deeper assurance, deeper confidence and deeper boldness to live lives that reflect His glory. Let's pray.
Holy Spirit, come among your people and fill us too with boldness. Fill us with boldness to be able to speak like the disciples we were looking at last week. But fill us also with boldness and assurance and confidence to be remarkably generous. To speak truth to one another. To pursue holiness and to repent of our sin. These are all miraculous things when we see them. We, they come from you, they're empowered by you, and so we pray. Keep changing us. Keep working through us. Do it even more than you have so far. So that as people come into contact with us individually, but particularly as they come into contact with us in community together, they might see something different. And that might be drawn in to learn the story of Jesus, to put their faith in him, and to lift their voices to glorify him as their king. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.